Welcome to the Question Community Broadcast. The Question is a new disruptive community that provides a gathering place for those who wonder about our complex selves, our complex world, our complex universe. We are a non-religious and inclusive community that explores the many questions surrounding truth in order to encourage you on the important journey to find your own answers. The Question Community gathers every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary, starting at 7. Information on the community is available at our website, www.thequestion.ca. You can also join the community online at our Facebook page, which is The Question, and on Twitter, at TQCom, with two M's. You're now going to hear some highlights from our community gathering, where the question is asked through original arts and music, as well as thought-provoking presentations. This is Frederick Tamagi. After a time, he allowed the students to exit the bus, still blindfolded. Okay. He asked the group to make their best guess for the direction of the university campus and point their fingers in that direction. Surprisingly, a significant number of the students pointed in the correct direction. Now, he replicated this experiment the very next day with the same students. Only this time, he secretly inserted small magnets into their blindfolds. And again, surprisingly, there was a significant reduction in the number of students who pointed in the correct direction. This kind of magnetic interference often happens to migrating birds flying near high-tension power lines or microwave towers. They lose their way. Yes. Sure. So, being that we all carry cell phones, are there magnets involved with that as well that could be disruptive at all? It's it's quite possible. It's quite possible that that's what it does. I mean, there's a lot of research and study being done on cell phone signals, right, and what they do to human tissue, right? And the jury's still out on that, but there's no question that that given this kind of research, that it could have an influence for sure. Okay, in 1952. The 500-foot tanker SS Pendleton was caught in a severe winter storm 20 miles off the coast of Massachusetts. Now, in 100-mile-an-hour winds and 60-foot waves, the tanker actually broke in half. It's apparently due to a bad weld, but it was like a 500-foot tanker busted in half. The bow section was completely disabled and expected to sink, but the stern section, which is in the middle there, which contained the engine and the rudder, remained afloat thanks to a combination of courage and invention by the surviving crew. They were able to send out a distress signal with their approximate position, and the Coast Guard station at Chatham, Massachusetts sent out a 36-foot wooden rescue boat with a crew of four volunteers to attempt a location and a rescue. On the way out to sea, one of those 60-foot waves crashed down on the rescue boat, destroying the ship's compass. Now, rather than turn back, the Coast Guard leader, there he is right there, boatswain's mate, Bernie Weber, decided to carry on the search in pitch dark and blizzard conditions, equipped only with a searchlight. Weber not only found Pendleton without a compass, he and his crew saved 32 Pendleton seamen and then successfully navigated back to Chatham Harbor. By the way, this rescue is dramatized in a movie called The Finest Hours. I watched it on Netflix the other day. It's, it's actually a, a pretty good movie. This guy, Bernie Weber, is played by Chris Pine. So it doesn't quite look like him, but. So, 
Science can now argue that, like other members of the animal kingdom, we possess an actual magnetic compass in our bodies. Experience tells us that we might even know people like Bernie Weber, who have an uncanny sense of direction in unknown territory or even in the dark. I don't know if you know anybody. I know a couple of people that seem to kind of know where they are. Uh, they never seem to get lost, either in the city or in the forest or whatever. Now we know why. Science and history intrigue us with remarkable stories of this kind of human compass. But is the human compass just physical? Are we merely physical navigators like our animal relatives? Is our compass just meant to guide us geographically? Or does the fact of our unique humanity cause you to wonder if our compass could guide us beyond mere geography? Somebody mentioned it out here. What about a metaphysical compass? We are, in fact, unique from any other living creature on the Earth. And what makes us unique is our dramatically evolved, advanced neural system. Our brain has the combined neural building blocks of the entire animal kingdom, okay? The reptilian brain drives our instincts. The mammalian or limbic brain drives our emotions. The advanced neocortex, which is only possessed by higher thinking species, drives our intellect. But we have another neural building block that separates us from the pack, from the herd, from the swarm, from the school or the flock. We have the most advanced prefrontal cortex component in our brain. The prefrontal cortex is the engine of our creativity and imagination. It is the cauldron of our philosophical and scientific insight. The prefrontal cortex drives our ability to see beyond our circumstances, and more importantly, to have a vision beyond ourselves. Now, in the second presentation of the question, in October 2015, that's right, 2015, I introduced the concept of the cognitive neural heart and the powerful electromagnetic field that radiates from the heart. Now, the 3.6 billion neural cells that comprise 60% of the heart's cellular structure. I don't know if some of you weren't here, so maybe you didn't know that 60% of our heart's cellular structure is actually neural cells, not muscle cells, okay? They're heart connected to the 100 billion neural cells in our brain. Now this heart connection of heart and brain includes the 8 billion neural cells of our prefrontal cortex, creating a kind of neural port or gateway to our heart's EM field certain artist's rendering of what our EM field looks like. Now the heart's EM field emanates from us by current scientific measurement in a three-dimensional spin or torus motion to a radius of at least 40 feet in all directions and angles. So we're all kind of standing or sitting in each other's EM fields right now, and this is measurable. Now this measurement is based on conventional electromagnetic instruments and doesn't account for any subatomic or quantum-based measurement of the same EM activity, not yet, anyway. Now, it could be coincidental, possibly synchronistic, uh, but definitely provocative that our heart's EM torus has a similar form and motion to a space-time wormhole, which is an important and now observable phenomenon of quantum-based astrophysics, okay? This is like a static graphic of a space-time wormhole. This is an animation of how a torus works. And this is the motion that they have observed with black hole singularities and wormholes. We also discussed astrophysics and quantum-based astrophysics in January here, last year. 
So I want you to consider these questions. If we have biogenic magnetite in our beaks and our brains, a trait we share with multiple species of animals, do we also have our own biological compass? If our biological compass gives us the capacity to interact with the Earth's known electromagnetic field, what additional capacity is possible when our neural compass is hard connected to a personal EM gateway that resembles a space-time wormhole? If our biological compass was designed to help us navigate to a physical destination, is it possible that our enhanced neural compass can help us navigate to a metaphysical destination? Just asking. Now, the most amazing stories of navigation, animal or human, are defined by the notion that the navigator is enabled, or perhaps empowered might be a better description, to find a path through an unknown, uncharted, even hostile geography. And the destination truly too far away to see, the navigator must have a compass. And for the compass to function, it must be connected to and guided by the Earth's magnetic field in order to accurately point the navigator toward the true destination. Okay? It's the only way. The defining difference between the true explorer and the truly lost is a functioning compass guided by the Earth. Now, this is navigation. True explorers don't simply wander. Okay? They commit to a path. A compass empowers that commitment, and a compass illuminates that path. Now, the stories of the monarch butterfly and the Pendleton are stories of dangerous, unlikely navigation through an unknown, hostile reality. When viewed from our detached, sheltered, even privileged vantage point, reality can often seem powerfully intimidating or even disarmingly neutral to us. I recently read a book about World War I among other things, the book detailed the incredible disconnect between the generals in their headquarters and the soldiers on the battlefield. In one passage, a wounded, traumatized soldier shared a powerful dual image with the reader. He envisioned the generals looking at their maps of the battlefield, moving small markers representing military units around the map like so many tokens on some kind of board game. Then the soldier relived the devastating effect of machine guns, artillery, anti-personnel mines, and poison gas on the thousands of ordinary soldiers on both sides. Reality. Now, to the generals, the map view was their reality. It neatly and painlessly charted a nice, tidy path to their victory objective. To the soldiers on the battlefield, their reality was the carnage and danger right in front of them. Their reality didn't permit them to see the neat and painless path to victory. The soldier's reality overwhelmed the general's reality to the point where the issues of life and death became the soldier's only path. No one needed a map through this reality more than they. In war, no one needs a compass more than those on the battlefield. The Amazon River is one of the great natural wonders of the world. The Amazon is so gigantic it's even easy to see it from space. This is Shannon McGee. Silence is sinking underneath my skin. The dark is still raining. Light is yet to begin. 
Schindler was a Nazi intelligence agent. When the war began, he became an influential business leader as a Nazi party member. When the Nazis began to implement their final solution for the Jews of Europe, Schindler persuaded condemned Jewish businessmen to lend him money to buy a factory that would supply goods to the German army. It's crazy. He knew it was a loan that likely he would never have to repay. Now, in a final character statement, he arranged for a captive Jewish labor force with a commandant of a nearby concentration camp. Through the course of the war, Oskar Schindler made himself a fortune by riding the dark wave of Nazism and exploiting the Jewish people. And they were destined for genocide at the hands of his master race. By all accounts, Schindler was living the reality of Nazi power and privilege. He was able to enrich himself by choosing the map view of Nazism. To Schindler, both the Nazis and the Jews were merely markers on his map to personal fortune. This map was his reality. This map was the neat, painless path to success. Schindler was a general, not a soldier, at least as far as people knew. By the end of the war, Schindler had 1,200 Jewish workers on his factory floor. And during the war years, hundreds of thousands of other Jews who lived right nearby him had been displaced and murdered. And millions more Jews had been murdered all over Europe. By some miracle or error of Nazi administration, Schindler's 1,200 Jewish workers were never included in any deportation list destined for the extermination camps. Even in the final months of the war, when the Nazis actually ramped up their murder machine to finish the job of racial purification, Schindler's 1,200 workers were overlooked. On the day following Germany's surrender, Schindler was making ready to run. He feared capture, you see, uh, and prosecution as a war profiteer. Just before he left his factory, his 1,200 Jewish workers gathered around him to thank him for their lives. They presented Schindler with a ring made from gold teeth, voluntarily given by one of his grateful living workers. Okay. The ring was engraved with these words from the Hebrew scriptures. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. These 1,200 Jewish workers that survived eventually told Schindler's true story. Now, remember what I said earlier about Schindler's compass? In the beginning, he was a general, placing markers on this map to advantage himself. Then, very soon after the war started, Oskar Schindler found himself on the battlefield. The path to his personal fortune that he had so carefully marked on his map now had to pass through this reality on the way. I think only then did he realize the need for his compass. History, science, and nature show us that even if a compass points out the true direction, it is the navigator that must find the path. On this battlefield, something happened to Schindler's compass to alter his carefully planned, self-interested destination. Okay, but here's the thing. He could have blindly followed his new compass heading like a migratory bird or a fish by simply changing direction. He could have openly resisted or even abandoned his old reality. Now, he could have bravely chosen to die resisting, as many do in war. He could have purchased an escape to avoid further risk to himself. Instead, he followed a complicated path that led him to being the only Nazi ever buried on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. 
Okay, this is my point. A direction is not a path. A compass can only point the way. A navigator must find the path. Oscar Schindler chose to navigate. He chose to navigate through an unknown hostile territory following his new compass while making it look as if he was still following his old compass. Now, this is a very complicated compass. It's complicated because real life is complicated. Schindler's compass guided him on a very, very complicated path. It turns out that Schindler employed twice as many workers as he actually needed. He found ways to employ small children and old people in order to keep whole families together. He made sure that his factory produced a certain percentage of goods for the army that were defective, okay? but not a high enough percentage to raise Nazi suspicions to a danger point. Besides, he had a convenient excuse whenever he was questioning inferior Jew Jewish labor. The most amazing illustration of Oscar Schindler's compass correction was this. His original compass, with its simple path, had pointed the way to a personal fortune. His new compass, with its complicated path, pointed the way to personal bankruptcy. Through the course of the war, Schindler used his money to purchase expensive gifts, finance lavish parties, and bribe Nazi officials to keep his factory going, but to protect the lives of all of his Jewish workers. At the end, he spent all of his remaining money, all of it, on bribes to keep his workers off the final deportation lists. Oscar Schindler literally purchased each of the 1,200 Jewish lives that were saved. And on the last day, he was the one that was forced to flee for his life. A penniless war profiteer. How ironic is that? His compass had radically changed, pointing to a complicated, ironic destination, so different from his original plan, his original compass. What changed it? Now, our lives are unique from any other creature on Earth. We've been given the same biological compass that guides other creatures through their landscape. But just as our lives are unique from theirs, our landscape is also unique. Our landscape is not just geographical or topographical. Our landscape is also social, political, economic, scientific, philosophical, and yes, spiritual. Unlike our animal relatives, navigating our landscape requires more than just a direction or a vector. Navigating our complicated landscape requires a path for which we need a complicated compass. It's not simply a biological compass. It may be another kind of compass that is uniquely ours. So I'll leave you, okay, with these questions about our unique compass. If a physical compass helps us navigate this reality, could a metaphysical compass help us navigate this reality? If this is the outside force that guides our physical compass, could this be a glimpse of the outside force that guides our metaphysical compass? Our unique, complicated compass for our unique, complicated lives? So ask yourself, what guides your compass? That's it. Thanks for being so patient.
Thank you for listening. If you're interested in joining the Question community, we meet every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary starting at 7. You can participate in the online discussion on our Facebook page, which is The Question, or on Twitter at TQCom. That's at T-Q-C-O-M-M. Our website is www.thequestion.ca. Thanks again for listening, and remember that our answers are only possible because of our questions.